So a couple of things I want to draw your attention to before we look uh, at uh, Psalm uh, 127 this morning. One of the things you'll notice if you look at the text that's printed in, in the bulletin, you notice it says there, um, Psalm 127, and we're going to read out the King James Version, then it says a song of ascents, and it says of Solomon, right? So one of the things you notice about the uh, uh, Psalms is they'll often say, you know, this is a Psalm of David, this is a Psalm of somebody else. Well, this is a, this is a Psalm of Solomon, right? Now, how ironic that it's about building. What do we know about Solomon? He built the temple, right? Uh, that, was, that was his big project, right? Uh, also, how ironic that that was his big project. And what do we know about Solomon's life? It was ultimately a failure. Oh, what? Right? His multiple marriages, uh, his failed kingship, and the end, set the, and his poor child rearing. Uh, set the stage for uh, the division of the kingdom and the two kingdoms, and ultimately uh, its demise. And we just sung Psalm 84, right? About how beautiful the temple is. I was taught Psalm 84 was actually written from exile. And we know, if you're familiar with Psalm 84 at all, that, it's a, that it describes the beauty of the temple, and it even says that the sparrow, you know, finds a place to nest there. Well, if a bird is nesting in your house, it's because you're not keeping it up. <laughs> the temple's in ruins. And the writer of, of that psalm is thinking, I'd rather be there in that ruin than I am in Babylon. Right? Now, why does this matter? Uh, why, do, why do we need to talk about this? Because the question that Psalm 127 answers is the question that that life, that trajectory of that life of Solomon should pose for you. And that is the question of, is all this stuff I'm doing, does it matter? Now, let me read to you Psalm 127. Now that I have your attention. (laughs) Isn't that awesome? Okay. Uh, We're reading from the King James this uh, summer because we don't usually read from the King James. That's why we're doing it. So Psalm 127, uh, this is the word of God. We should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, uh, for so he giveth his beloved sleep. Lo, children are in heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gates. So classic psalm, one that uh, we, uh, uh, as Kevin uh, said earlier, you know, when we, we sing that, except the Lord build the house, those who build it labor in vain. If you go around chanting that to yourself for the next week, uh, that would be a good thing. That would be a good thing. A humbling thing, uh, a sobering thing, but also an encouraging thing, right? So one of the things that I think is profound about this text is that in the midst of talking about the, the, these great human endeavors, the, the endeavor of building, the endeavor of preserving, that's what the watchman does, and the endeavor of passing on uh, to the next generation something, One of the things that we see in that, one of the things that we have to ask in that is, is all of this in vain? 
And it would be worth your while to spend some time thinking about that question. In fact, if you have time, do a New Testament word study sometime of the Apostle Paul about how many times in his epistles he uses the language in vain. He was haunted, haunted by the thought that all that he had done, and he did a lot, might be in vain. And so one of the things that happens in that is our temptation, as, as we'll see in the psalm, is if I'm afraid things are going to be in vain. So my answer to that is to work harder. And my answer to that then is to have, as I work harder and I'm fearful that what I've done is in vain, is to not sleep. So one of the things that's profound about this, this psalm is that it ends up taking us to a place where it talks about one of the gifts of God in the midst of this is not that God promises to you that he will make you significant, even though he does, but that he'll give you sleep. Sleep. Um, I run, uh, try to run 30 miles a week. Why do I try to run 30 miles a week? They, people ask me all the time, are you training for something? And I say, yes, I am training to miss my first heart attack. And so... Uh, but the real reason, the real reason why I run 30 miles a week is so I can sleep at night. Even after running 30 miles a week, you know I have to sleep with a thing in my mouth to keep me from grinding my teeth down to nubs? Yeah, some of you do too. Because uh, I've slept in the room with you and I've heard your teeth grinding. <laughs> and other things. <laughs> um, one of the reasons, one of the reasons why I do that is so I can go to sleep at night. And I go to sleep, I, I, uh, the worst things can be happening and I can put my head on the pillow and I'll fall asleep. Uh, and I'm up at four. Usually when I'm up at four, it's because, uh, I went to sleep and whatever I was thinking about or worried about or concerned about woke me up. And, uh, I can't go back to sleep because I immediately go to that. Now, my wife always tells me, God woke you up to make you pray, um, <laughs> which sounds really good, doesn't it? So I pray, and I'm like, all right, I prayed now. Let me get back, you know, at least another hour of sleep, and that never works either. So uh, sometimes it does. Okay, we are in church. I've got to say that. Sometimes it does. But, but actually, my unbelief can be big enough that that doesn't even work. So what do we do about this? So how do, how do we think about this and how do we uh, uh, deal with the lives that we lead? Well, I, have this, I found this great quote from John Piper today that I think is, is pretty, pretty profound. It kind of helps us think about this. Wherever there are people whose hearts are not fretful or anxious or in a resentful frenzy, <laughs> resentful frenzy, read Mary and Martha, you know. Uh, uh, Martha was mad because Mary wasn't helping her. <laughs> Uh, that's, that's my life. But instead, have a tranquility of heart and a kind of peaceful abandon. Wouldn't it be great to live with peaceful abandon? Wouldn't that be awesome? In which they take thought for others' concerns instead of being all wound up in their own. Wherever there are people like that, the world sits up and takes notice. And rightly so, uh, because in all likelihood, something out of this world is at work there. Something that people everywhere are hungry for even if they're not sure what it is. The world is full of anxious people. Actually, this room is. It's been a theme we've developed this summer as we've looked at the Psalms. Students anxious about whether people will laugh at their new shoes or their car or their clothes. or Yeah, 
about getting good grades. It is just a couple of weeks till you guys start thinking about that. Um, some of you need to be anxious about your summer reading, by the way. Uh, you need to get on that. Uh, about giving a book report in front of the class. Adults anxious about impressing the boss or just impressing anybody, actually. Uh, we'll get to that, too, and a little bit about making impressions on people about what wonderful parents you are. Uh, losing a client. Finishing a report on time. Getting out of a foolish investment. A strange pain in the chest. Or, since it's summertime, a weird mole on your arm, right? From time to time, there settles over everyone that dark, gray, heavy blanket of depressing anxiety that in the moment makes everything dark and seems impossible to throw off. The experience is so common that those who live in peace and freedom and joy shine like stars in the darkness. Those who have found the way to obey Jesus' command, be anxious for nothing, when, you know, honestly, as we've said over the last couple of weeks, uh, since our first parents were thrown out of the garden, uh, there's plenty in this world to be anxious about, right? Um, these are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. They bring savor and sunshine to sunshine. They bring sunshine to places where the creeping gray fog of anxiety has made everything tasteless and dark. Now, we're off and running this morning, aren't we? Tasteless and dark. Okay, so what keeps you up at night? What are you building and what are you spending your time and energy on preserving? But, and I think most of us can answer those questions pretty straightforwardly, right? Uh, but then what about this question? Will it even be worth it in the end? Will it be worth it? Now, now, one of the things that we do at, around here is we, we, we're quick to answer that question because we have a certain expectation that if we do what God has told us to do, that God is under obligation to prove to us and to show us before we die that it was worth it. Where, what Bible that's in, I don't know. Uh, we're gonna get, we're gonna get to some good news in a minute, but I, I just, I, I need to destroy some idols here. And, and by the way, these are my idols. Uh, and because I'm one of you, I think they're probably yours too. Uh, and then the question is, where's God in all of our building? All of our preserving? All of our anxiety? All of our sleeplessness? All of our labor, 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 right? So, so let's, let's make some observations about the text. One of the things that you notice about it is this phrase in vain is repeated a bunch, right? Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, right? So, so one of the things that we read about that, if you're familiar with the Old Testament at all, you may think that that refers to, and because this is Solomon, you may think it's the same concept that is in Ecclesiastes about vanity. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. It's a different word. In fact, it's a different context, uh, uh, 
uh, context of that word. This word used here for vain points back to Genesis 3.16. And that's an important place for us to start this morning. Because what you know about Genesis 3.16 is where God comes to Adam and Eve and confronts them with their sin and he, and, and he curses them, right? Well, he doesn't curse them, but he, he curses all these things around them. And notice what he curses. Now, God had said to Adam and Eve, uh, that they were to exercise dominion and that they were to work the garden and that the garden would produce everything that they wanted. They knew no anxiety because they knew that whatever they did would automatically be fruitful. They knew that even even their rest, because God was so good to them, was going to produce fruit, that there was no anxiety about hunger or want or lack. But what do we see here is, as a result of the curse, God says, because you disobeyed, what's going to happen? Well, you're going to have to work yourself to the bone. And even as you work yourself to the bone, so much in nature, so much in life, so much in the world is going to be against you. It is going to be hard, hard, hard and uncertain. God also said to uh, uh, Adam and Eve uh, in the garden to be fruitful and to multiply. And what does he say? And the rearing of children, and the passing on of, of, of life to others, and the mentoring and the, the concern for the next generation, what's it going to be full of? Pain. The pain there is not just the pain of labor, that's certainly true, the pain of labor having a baby, not just the pain of labor work. But the, the uncertainty and the hurt and the pain and the difficulty that comes with entrusting uh, so much of your heart and your love and your, your future into the hands of those who are just like you. Security. One of the things that we look for in life as a way to find ourselves and to make ourselves absolutely secure. And what, what the curse says is, while in the garden there was no hint of anxiety outside of the garden, there's much to make us nervous, right? So when we ask this question, you know, what, if, if we're laboring in vain, what most of us will do is we'll think, well, there is some production from our labor. Even if it's hard, even if it's difficult, uh, I will give myself to it. And, and the psalm uh, recognizes that, right? It says, yes, it's vain to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrow. So you can produce some bread, you can get something to eat, but, but it's the kind of bread that gives you indigestion because it's the bread of sorrows, it's the bread of anxiety, it's the bread of difficulty, right? And so we think, okay, well, you know what? I know it's hard. I know it's difficult. And I might even be acknowledging the fact that part of the reason why it's hard and part of the reason why it's difficult is not just the curse and not just that stuff out there, but I'm hard. I'm difficult. I'm unbelieving. Uh, I am uh, lazy. I am these things. So, so even then you may think I may be contributing to that or I'm not as gifted as others. But what the psalmist says is what most of us do. You know what? It's hard. And, and I might not be the smartest guy in the room. I might not be the best looking guy in the room. I might not be the most gifted guy in the room, but I can outwork everyone. One of the things, one of the things that Marty and I laugh about, one of the gifts that we've given our children is, you know, as we say to them, you look, you're not really smart and you're not really good looking and you're not really talented. Okay? Not uniquely so, but show up! Just show up! Just get to the job on time. You'd be amazed at what a rock star you can be if you just get there and show up. Right? 
that's the story of my life. When they write the book about me, it's going to be Steve Shelby. He showed up, right? <laughs> so what we think here is what the psalmist says. You know what? It is hard, but I'll outwork people. Well, what, what happens when we outwork people? Well, when we outwork people, what we begin to do is we begin to trust ourselves and we begin to, we become embittered because we're outworking and we're up. And we're up. And we're working. Now listen, God made you to work. Uh, when He put Him in the garden, He didn't just put Him in the garden to lay around and do nothing. He made us to work. Work is a blessing. Work is a mercy. Work is, is a grace from God. No doubt about it. But this side of the garden, what have we done with work? Well, we've transformed it into something that's a grind, right? So we'll just work harder. And if that's our secret and that's our way to make it through this life, and we should work hard, uh, what we end up doing is eating uh, the bread of anxiety. Um, one, of, one of the things that bugs me, and is really troubling me, really troubling me about our, our uh, society, and particularly our economy, uh, is this. Not what you hear on TV, uh, not about taxes or debt or um, whatever they're yakking about. But I'm pretty sure I came across a statistic in the last month that says productivity is going down in our country. How in the heck can productivity be going down when you work all the time? You're never away from work. Some of you are in here this morning on your phones working. And some of you are falling asleep because you've worked too much. And some of you are not listening to me because you're thinking about work. Right? So, so as we think about that, I'm like, well, how can that be? Well, I, I, you know, I don't know what all of that says. I don't know what all of that is about, but I do know this. I, it, it is funny that the answer to, to working harder here and the way we think about this is, is that the Lord's gift to us is more energy, right? The Lord says, look, look, you, you know what? You need to work harder, and to help you work harder, I'm going to get you better coffee. I'm going to get you a better energy drink. I'm going to get you a better all this stuff. No, what does he say? What does he give to his beloved? He gives them sleep. Now, have you ever wondered why in the world sleep, why we have to sleep? Why didn't God make human beings such that they never had to sleep? Why didn't God make human beings so that we can go, 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 maybe close our eyes for five minutes or something like that, but in fact that we could just go all the time? Wouldn't we, wouldn't we be more productive? Wouldn't we be more effective? Wouldn't we be better stewards? Wouldn't we we'd be all of those things if we didn't sleep? I mean, what does it say about you and me that we have to spend a third of our lives on our beds asleep, not doing anything? What does that say about us, right? Uh, well, it says, I think, a, a couple of things. So what you have to ask the question, what's happening when you sleep? Does the world stop? No. Does God stop? No. God's still working. So, so what is it? What's happening when you sleep? Well, by the fact that you go to sleep at night, you are acknowledging the fact that you are weak. That you are frail and that you need to sleep and that, that though you might think of yourself as outworking everybody else, at some point in time, you're going to have to rest. You're going to have to sleep. And when you sleep, what happens? 
Does the work stop? Does God stop? We have the promise of God that he never sleeps, that he's always at work, that he's always doing something, right? And that he's always achieving in and through us. Praise God that he's doing that because the, the watchman's walking around the wall. He wakes up to do that. Well, God was watching all along. You plant the seed in the ground and you go to bed and you come up the next day and it grew. Did you make it grow? No, you were asleep. Right? So, so, the, so the fact is, the, the gift that we have here is to recognize our, our dependence, not our independence, to recognize the fact that in all of our labor and all of our difficulty, every day when we go to bed, it should be a reminder to us of the blessing of God that God says to me, you need to go to bed. You need to go to sleep. We also need to look in this text about the wordplay between the word builders and children. Um, one of the things that, that you see about this is, is that uh, uh, when, we, uh, when we read this text and we read about God uh, or a person uh, building something and then watching a city and then it makes this jump uh, to raising children, that's on purpose because one of the ways that we have to see what is happening here is the kind of building that God's talking about and the kind of city that he's talking about and the kind of quiver that he's talking about and the kind of arrows that he's talking about, right? In Second Samuel, King David, the father of Solomon, uh, says, you know what? It is embarrassing to me that my God lives in a tent. What does that say about me, after all, if my God lives in a tent? Is anybody going to take me seriously if my God lives in a tent? You know, because the Ark of the Covenant's out in a tent. So I'm going to take care of that. I've taken Jerusalem. I'm rich. I'm successful. God, to show you how important you are to me and to the rest of the world, because you need some public relations here, God. You know, what self-respecting God in the ancient Near East lives in a tent? So I'm going to build you a house. There's nothing wrong with that in the sense, you know, that David wants to honor his Lord. He recognizes that God's provided for him. He's like, I'm going to do this for you, God. And God is very kind in his response uh, uh, to David. Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house? He's not saying, hey, David, come on, build me a house. He's saying, come on, David, you're going to build me a house? So God says, I don't want you to build me a house, but let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'll give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And how's he going to do that? When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I'll raise up your offspring after you. And what do we know about that? Well, the offspring that we're, that the whole world was waiting on, the, the offspring that, that mattered was Jesus Christ, the son of David, right? So one of the things that you have to see about this is, is exactly what God is saying to us in this. And, and here's the thing. Um, if you're tempted this morning to think that what you're doing is in vain, if you're tempted this morning because you failed, 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 and there's only a few of you that are, have recognized that because most of us think we failed but or, or actually, you know, we, we're, we're actually doing okay. But if you're one of the kind of people that you actually wonder sometimes, all this money I've given away, is it, was it in vain? 
All, all this time and energy I've given to these children, was it in vain? All, all this work that I've done for that church, is it in vain? All that care and stuff that I've done for my neighbor to, to reflect Jesus Christ to them, is it in vain? Was it in vain? Does it even matter? Well, what you have to see about that is if you're asking the question this morning, if what you've done is in vain, and you're wondering if it's in vain because no one else has come to tell you that it wasn't in vain, if no one else has come to you to tell you that it wasn't in vain, because you were expecting someone to come and tell you, either by their activity or their uh, responsiveness to your labor or the fact that they just came alongside you to tell you that you're great, the problem with your question here is not, it's not, there's nothing wrong with asking the question whether your labor's in vain. It's who determines whether it's in vain or not. Right? Right? So, let's unpack that a little bit. Let's look at two houses that God builds in chapter 11 of Genesis. Chapter 11 of, of Genesis is the great chapter about the Tower of Babel, right? And so it begins with the people and the world saying, you know what, Let come together, let us make bricks. Now why would we talk about making bricks? Why is that important? That's a technological advance, a giant technological advance, because previous to this, people are building their houses out of sticks or, or out of dirt and rocks, but now we make bricks. And because we can make bricks, We can build something to our specifications, and we can make it as big and as tall as we want to. We have the technology, which is not a bad thing. God made us to make technology. He made us to humanly flourish. But you know what? Now we got bricks. And what are we going to do with those bricks? We're going to build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. Because if we make a name for ourselves, at least in our little weird way, however it might be, I will know that what I have done in the making of the bricks and the building of the tower and the city was not in vain. And God looks at that and says, I'm not having any of that. So with no effort at all, God frustrates what they're doing by scattering them, by making them unable to understand each other's language. And so you think, well, that ends that story. But God answers that building with a building of his own. God's building in a genealogy at the end of the chapter. And he's building it with this. When Terah had lived 70 years, He fathered Abram. God's building. You build with bricks. I'm building with Terah. How many of you thought about Terah when you got up this morning? (laughs) How many of you thought, that guy Terah, wow, what a saint. Man, without him, I'd be dead. Do you think that this morning? Terah is a faceless guy in the ancient Near East who is a part of a giant migration of people moving from the Ur of the Chaldees, from that region around the Mesopotamia. There are thousands of people, maybe even millions of people, who are migrating to Canaan. He's just a guy on the road. Just a guy on the road. Nothing important. There's nothing about him that would would, uh, uh, draw your interest. But he has a boy, and the boy's name is Abram. And now the Lord said to Abram, 
Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. God's building. He's building a people. He's building a family. And so we read that and we think, that's so awesome. So when Abram died, they put on his tombstone the founder of God's family. Look around you at the millions of followers, the millions of descendants, the blessing he is, the ownership of this land. When Abram died, he had two boys, one legitimately, one illegitimately. The one that he had legitimately, not not that great, not that great. Only three chapters about him. The whole buildup in Genesis to, to Isaac. And he gets here, three chapters. And he's poof, he's gone. And, and most of those chapters, he's old and drooling on himself and effectively parenting. Right? And, and you think, well, well, you know, they got rich. Well, they did have a lot of sheep and goats and they had servants and that kind of stuff. And, and, and they did own some real estate. They owned a cave where they buried their dead. Was it in vain? You think Abraham went to his grave wondering if it was in vain? You think Isaac went to his grave wondering if it was in vain? Do you think Jacob went to his grave in Egypt thinking that it was vain when they had to? Do you think? Do you think? So one of the things that you have to see about this is God is building his house. And his house, you won't even see it. You wouldn't even notice it unless God opened your eyes to see it. God's building is quiet. God's building is unpretentious. God's building is, next slide, please, Becky. Um, uh, the world's not even watching. In fact, I would submit to you that the thing, the way that we can know that what we are doing, the labor that we're doing uh, is not in vain is if nobody notices if nobody sees it, right? Because, because the fact of the matter, and, and I, listen, let me just stop right here. I know you don't want to hear that. I know what you want is you want your reputation to be built up. You want people to think you're dynamic, to people to think you're, 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 you're making, uh, you, that you do all these things and that, you, and, and you say, no, I don't want to do that. I want people to think I'm humble. Well, if you think that you want people to think you're humble, you're in vain. That's vanity. Okay, right? So the fact is, for most of what God does in the building of the house, the vast majority of these generations die before the building's done. And in fact, truth be told, uh, the most effective, gifted, called person among us will die before the building's done. Because the building won't be done until Jesus says it's done, right? So we read this and we think, wow, this is so harsh and this is so hard and this is so discouraging. Ah, the second half of the psalm. I will find meaning and I will find purpose in my life by raising up children and I will make them like arrows and I will shoot them at the culture war and I'm going to win. Right? That's the, that's the secret to significance. That's the secret to a great life is that I will raise these children and they're going to be like arrows, sharp and fast and sleek, and they go right to the target and they're going to make me look like a mighty man because I did it. And 
One of the things I I think is hilarious, and I do this regularly, and you should know that I ask these questions of you, and they're trick questions. Oftentimes we'll be at somebody's wedding, and I will say to the parents, you did a great job raising that kid. And some of you say, yes, I did. Now, I know what you meant. Except the Lord builds the house. They labor in vain. I know that's what you meant. Right? Um, so what are we to make of that? Well, uh, all of these things are, are work that God has given us to do. But the fact of the matter is that if we look to our own devices, because your measure or even the measure of the person sitting next to you of whether your labor uh, is in vain uh, <clears throat> is, a, is a false measure. Right. Uh, and so one of the things that I came across this, I, I thought of a couple of families uh, uh, this quote, you know, so before your kids are a quiverful, they're likely to be a handful. <laughs> anyway, and there's actually something about that in the text, right? Because it seems like he takes them in hand before he puts them in the quiver, right? In the hand of the mighty man. He's blessed is the man who has a quiverful, right? Um, so what are we to make of that? Well, I think what we are to make of this and the, the reality of this situation is whether it's raising children, whether it's raising a business, whether it's working at a job, whether it's building a house, whether it's preserving something, whatever it is, none of it matters. None of it matters unless it's connected to Jesus Christ. Now, how does that work? And, and how am I to think about that? Because what we tend to think about that is, is that the measure that something is, uh, that it is connected to Jesus Christ means that it will be successful by whatever means I determine what that success is. That means that, that, that I will have the sense that this, this is good, that this is working, and that somehow or other I get a payoff. I see the results of that. And sometimes you do. But sometimes you don't. And God is under no obligation to write you a check before you die. Right. So so here's the thing. We have to ask the question, if it is so dependent on God, if it is so dependent on him and yet he requires me and holds me accountable to do these things to work in this way, then then how am I to have any sense of any joy or any satisfaction? How am I to have any sense that this matters at all? What's going to give you the energy appropriately for the work? Well, the first thing is that you realize that it is to God and for God. And so that sets you free from your, your uh, idol of reputation. That sets you free from having other people or your own sinful heart to determine whether what you're doing is in vain or not. But the ultimate solution to this problem, the ultimate solution to our question about this, and the ultimate solution, whether it's raising children or, or whether it's uh, uh, our work or whatever, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the answer. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Because if we're all going to end up dead anyway, and in a 100 years, all the people who spoke well of you at your funeral will be gone, and no one will remember that you were even here. How do we not know that it's in vain? 
Paul writes, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. How do I know that? How do I I get that? Well, I know that my labor in the Lord is not in vain, not because I'm successful, not because I'm gifted, not because I'm talented, not because people follow me, not because people look up to me, not because my children obey, none of those things. As good as those things are, and we should press to those, I know that your labor is not in vain. I know that my labor is not in vain because the tomb is empty, because Jesus rose from the dead. And because he rose from the dead, that answers this question. And because I am found in Christ, because I belong to him, and because he belongs to me, all of this labor, all of this dust, all of this drama, all of this work is bound up in and made something because Jesus Christ loved me, he died for me, he rose again, and because of that, that's my hope and my trust. And the day will come where Jesus will gather me to himself and I will see and hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, because Jesus did that work for me. Jesus did that work in me. He rose from the dead. So whenever you're tempted to to despair, you're tempted to anxiety, the promise of God to believe, the promise of God to hold on to, the promise of God is this, Jesus Christ was dead. Our God raised him from the dead, and he is alive forevermore. And that changes the whole way I look at my life and my labor and my family and the preservation of everything that is true of my life. So see, unless the Lord builds the house, unless the Lord keeps the city, and unless the Lord raises the dead, Your labor's in vain. But he raises the dead. And so he, his promise to us is, little flock, sleep well, work hard, sleep well, work hard. I raise the dead and I'll raise you. That is what gives us the energy and the certainty that all of the stuff you're giving yourself to is not in vain. Let's pray. Lord, we need a sense of this today. Forgive us for thinking that um, we could live and work uh, independent of you. Forgive us of that. Uh, Forgive us for our drive and our desire to uh, get the glory for ourselves. Thanks that you um, are the builder. You are the preserver. You've been raised from the dead. And we trust you with these great spheres of activity in our lives. Lord, would you prosper the work of the hands of the families in this church in such a way uh, that it is clear that you are at work? Would you give humility uh, to those of us who think um, we have earned um, the certainty uh, that what we do is not in vain. Would you uh, encourage and uh, rebuke the hearts of those of us who self-righteously demand that uh, you honor us? And would you give us confidence today uh, as we struggle to see uh, the end, that you're already there, that you've raised the dead, 
uh, and that as we'll sing uh, this morning, it's well. It is well because of you, Jesus. So uh, I pray today for the anxious, for the self-righteous, for the independent, for the sleepless, and for the tired, uh, that you would speak these words of clarity, of wisdom, of grace and truth. Lord, we ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. As the guys come up to take up the offering, let me remind you to drop your tear off in the plate. Please don't feel pressure to give today. Only give if it's a part of your worship in response to God's goodness and grace.